0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Out of joy, the church multiplies. Everybody say multiply. Multiply. That is the story of the early... Church, if you are just getting caught uh, up to speed, uh, here have been away for a few weeks, or maybe this is your first time here. Or just need a reminder uh, that is kind of your catch-up on the Book of Acts. I don't know if you've ever had that uh, feeling where you've been running behind, and you get to a movie, and the previews are already done, and they're about ten minutes into the movie. You ever had that feeling, and you have no idea what's going on? Well, we don't want you to have that feeling today when it comes to the Book of Acts. So that was a little reminder for you of what's been going on. There's been a lot happening, so much so that that's just the highlights uh, of it. And today we. are halfway through this sermon series called The Summer of Acts that we've been going through at all of our campuses. And I hope that you've been following along because there's so much to cover that we can't cover here on Sunday mornings. And so you can read along as you always can in the daily Bible reading. So first of all, if you don't have a Bible, we really do mean that. We would encourage you to take one home so that you never come walking through those doors without a Bible. That's your free gift from us today, as well as in the Welcome Center, back by the TV out there, there's uh, scripture readings, daily Bible readings for the whole series, for the whole month uh, of July. So we encourage you to be reading along so that Sunday morning is just kind of the icing on the cake uh, when you get here. But we would encourage you uh, to do that as well. And so uh, there's no way we can get through all these stories, and there's a lot of exciting things happening. We're halfway through in Acts 13 today. If you remember, a lot of the the gospel stories of Jesus uh, obviously take place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then in the beginning Beginning first couple chapters of Acts, that the centralized area in the, in the story there is Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost happens. That's where the Holy Spirit uh, comes and the church is born. But now the church is exploding. It's growing and going into different parts of Asia Minor and across the Roman Empire, which is very vast. At that time, the church is growing and it's crossing uh, cultural and ethnic barriers, it's crossing socioeconomic lines. It's not just in Jerusalem anymore. So you could say that the church has gone viral, right? I know we talk about Twitter a lot and I say if you're going to tweet, tweet about the sermon uh, when you're in church. But my encouragement to you is to think about that, that you are a product of the church going viral. If you're on Twitter and a tweet goes viral, what does that mean? It means that it's going all over, right? There's nothing that's going to it, stop it or stand in its way, and that is the church. We are here because there was a group of people a couple thousand years ago that were willing to put God's mission ahead of their own agenda and personal preferences. Let me say that again. We are here today because there was a group of people there in the early church that were willing to put God's mission above and beyond their personal preferences or their agenda for what the church should be like because in every day in age there are there's churches there's organizations there's groups of people that have the temptation to turn inward rather than turn out and the church has always been this way no matter what size a five or fifty or five hundred or five thousand or fifty thousand every church has the tendency to turn inwards but lest we forget that the church has always been made up of broken messy people just like you and I who unfortunately have the tendency to seek our own comfort and our own preferences above what God wants to do. Some of you have heard this story from the early days of Hope. I've shared it during our our new member class uh, a few times. But uh, there's a story from the early days uh, of Hope way back in the day. Go ahead and go to that next slide. This is actually a picture of the first Rally Sunday at Lutheran Church of Hope ever. There's Pastor Mike over there on the right. Just a huge crowd there that day, uh, as you can tell. Like, that was it, right? Well, Hope kind of grew from there a little bit. And the story goes that Hope had grown to about 300, about what we've had here uh, between our services Uh, this morning. And so the church had grown and it was getting a little bigger and some people were getting a little uncomfortable with that because they really liked smaller church, the style of having a smaller church. And so they were having a council meeting of all the leaders of Lutheran Church of Hope, and somebody stood up and made a motion. They said, you know what? This is getting kind of uncomfortable. I liked it when the church was smaller, and that's why I came, and because everybody could know each other, and we were kind of like a family, and it felt really close, and I don't want to get too big, because, you know, when a church gets big, it gets kind of surfacey and impersonal, and you can't know people. And so they said, I think we should just cap it at 300 Right, And if you know a little bit about Hope's story, you know how hilarious this is and how God was just chuckling along the whole way and said, oh, you have your plans, right? But God is the one that determines our steps. And somebody said, you know, I don't know. I think we should maybe just pray about that a little bit and hold off. Let's just table that until next month's agenda meeting. Well, during that next month, Hope grew by another 100 people. And so now we have 400 people. And so then that council meeting happened and the agenda item came up and then that same guy stood up and said, Okay, so who wants to tell those hundred people that they have to leave, right? That's how hope started, with this temptation to turn in rather than out, to seek our own comfort and our own preferences. But when it comes to church, hear me say this, bigger is not better, smaller is not better, better is better. Everybody say that, better is better. Say that together. Better is better, right? And better means being obedient to what God is calling us to do and be as a church regardless of what we want, this is God's thing. It's always been his thing, not ours. We're the body of Christ. And so it's about his agenda, not ours. And so bigger isn't better. Smaller is better. Better is better. And that means being obedient to what God is calling us to do. And we're going to leave the results and the size of the church and the style of the church up to him. And the reason that we do that is because there are tens and thousands of people in these neighborhoods around here in the greater Des Moines metro area that don't know Jesus or don't have a church home. And until that is no longer the case, our job is not done. Amen? That's who we've been called to be, to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. In every group, in every organization, every church repeatedly faces this temptation to turn in, to build fences and to keep some people out and to keep us in or to stay comfortable with our holy huddle. And that's why Acts is so important. That's why it's not just some history book that you, that you have in front of you this morning. This is our story. And across the the history of the church, we can learn a lot from the temptations that come our way as the church grows of how to not lose our mission as we grow, to keep a sense of urgency when it comes to the gospel. We did a sermon series a couple months ago, and one of our topics, the questions we posed was, isn't hope big enough already? (laughs) Why do we keep needing inviting people or starting more campuses and things like that? Isn't hope big enough already? And the way we respond to that is big enough for who? (laughs) For you and what you want it to be? Or big enough for God? And that's why we're called to never stop growing and lose our mission. And so we turn to Acts 13. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 13, and we're going to start with a story that we heard read for us this morning in verse 44 and 40. Five. As you're turning there, sometimes it's helpful to get a, an idea, a picture um, of where all this is happening. So if you read, like, the first 10 or 11 chapters of Acts, most of that is happening in Jerusalem, which you can see on this map is in the bottom right, or your, yeah, you're right, my left, down here in the corner. But if you draw a straight line up north and go up, it's kind of like going up to Minnesota, heading up to Antioch up there, the, the land of, uh, not lakes, but the Mediterranean Sea, that's where our attention turns now. So in Acts 13, the shift Focuses from uh, we we shift our focus from Jerusalem to Antioch, and the focus, the main character of Acts, was really Peter for the first ten uh, uh, books of the uh, chapters of the book or so, and he's ministering primarily to the Jews. And now we shift towards the main character being. Paul, who used to be Saul, as our sign says back here, in Antioch. And Antioch really becomes the center of church. It becomes the sending center, as you can see, very strategic geographically, if Paul and the other apostles are going to reach all these other parts of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean Sea, they needed something that was up farther north and something that was on the coast where they could set sail and get to all these different places to start these churches and spread the gospel. So now the shift has taken place, and here's Paul and his friend Barnabas, who he called Barney. Um, that's not true. I just made that up. But you know, Andy Griffith had Barney, so Paul had Barnabas, you know, the whole thing. Uh, Barnabas means son of encouragement because he was such an encourager, and that's why they hooked him up with Paul. And so they're going and they're uh, in Antioch and they're speaking to people there that have, a lot of them have never heard about Jesus. They're Gentiles, they're not Jews. They're not originally the Israelite nation. They're Gentiles. They're not of the Jewish nation, and people are just coming in droves, and they're super excited. It says that one time people were so excited and wanted to hear more that the entire town, the entire city, showed up to hear Paul preach. Wouldn't that be awesome if that happened in Des Moines, right? If we just had worship here one time and the entire city of Des Moines just showed up, we'd have to get a bigger building or blow the roof off the place or something, right? It'd probably make the register for sure. It's like, this is a big deal, Right? everybody shows up and everybody's excited to hear the gospel except, can you guess who? The religious people, right? The people that just put the stink in the whole party, right? The religious people, the Jews, are coming, actually coming against Paul's preaching and we pick it up in verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Later in the story, it says that the religious people... The God followers at the time were stirring people up to create kind of a mob that would go and and basically jump Paul and Barnabas, beat them up, and run them out of town. Doesn't it sound like a great church to be a part of? Like, sign me up for that, right? Who are these people? Probably Methodists or something. I don't know, but I'm just kidding. That's not how the church should go, but yet right away here, it's messy, They're jealous of what's happening. And one way to describe jealousy, we know, is the inability to celebrate another's successes. And we're going to jump on uh, the Jews here in in a little bit and talk about how they really kind of got in the way of the spread of the gospel. But before we do that, point the finger at somebody else. Let's point it back at us. How are you doing with that these days? How are you doing with jealousy? The inability to celebrate someone else's success. When somebody else wins and gets what you want or has what you have, what does that do inside of you? See, one of the things that has happened in our culture is that we're more connected than ever because there's this thing called social media. And don't get me wrong, I love it. I love Twitter, I love Facebook, I love all these things. They're great and we use them for the church and for kingdom purposes. But one of the things that's happened is as the, the use of social media has gone up, so has comparison. And with that, the temptation for more and more jealousy How are you doing when somebody posts something, you're like, I wanted that? How are you doing when somebody else gets the job that you wanted, that you were looking for? Or somebody that's way less qualified for you gets the raise at work and you didn't? How are you doing when you look at what that other couple has on Facebook and you're looking at their highlight reel going, man, I want that kind of marriage. Where did that spark go in our relationship? And you start to covet and you start to get jealous. And just makes you bitter and angry. The fruit of that is, is no good. Or how are you doing when you look on Facebook and you see that perfect family with their perfect kids and their, their perfect behavior that went on a perfect family vacation? You're like, oh, I wanted that. See, jealousy gets its hooks in us easier than we think. So before we go pointing the finger, just a little gut check this morning. How are you doing with that? The ability to celebrate another's successes marks maturity in us. It marks humility And really, how we handle jealousy speaks to our trust in God. Are you okay, and is God enough? That's what it comes down to. Or will you revert to jealousy? And that's what the Jews were doing in this story. Instead of celebrating and saying, yay, the gospel is going out of Jerusalem and it's going to the Gentiles, and all these new people are hearing about Jesus, they're directly trying to sabotage Paul's Efforts, which seems absurd. Like, why would the religious people get in the way of Jesus until you remember that for thousands of years, the Jews, the nation of Israel, were God's chosen people? They were the insiders. They were the ones in the club, God's special club. They were the insiders. And all of a sudden, all the outsiders are being let in. And Jesus comes and he knocks all these walls and fences down and says, anybody can follow me. You don't even have to get circumcised. And men, if you know what I'm talking about, you're like, man, couldn't have Jesus come sooner, right? If you're a Jew, right? If you're a Jewish male at the time, you're like, why do I have to go through all that? Some of you will get that on the way home. <laughs> but all of a sudden, the outsiders are becoming insiders. And anybody can be, anybody can follow Jesus. And so if you're a Jew, you're frustrated about this. And you begin to get jealous, and they turned inward instead of outward, which is always the temptation for those on the inside. They refuse to see the bigger picture of God's plan, that Jesus was for everybody and not just for the country club members. And their hearts grew hard and their religion got stale, which is what happens when we put our agenda above God's mission and our personal preferences above God's mission. Something got lost in translation. It's like a game of telephone. It's like Jesus was speaking these messages over and over again. I don't know how you miss this. I don't know how you can read the Bible and not see that Jesus was totally for the outsider. Jesus was totally for the people that are out on the fringes that you and I look at and go, I wouldn't want to hang out with them. You know, those people, whoever those people are for you, Jesus said, I'm for them. Jesus says, I'm actually for the people on the outside rather than the people on the inside. Are you? Or are you judging them? Are you jealous? How's your heart in that? Jesus says, basically his mission statement in Luke 19, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That includes the Gentiles. It's only been a couple of years since Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, this is what he told him. Acts chapter one, verse eight, let's read it together. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Everybody say ends of, earth. ends of the earth. That includes everybody, even the people that aren't like you, even the people that you are annoyed by, even the Gentiles, if you're a Jew. How did this get lost? Something got lost in translation. And I was watching uh, some commercials on YouTube a while back, and I love just watching funny commercials. And this one is from a couple years ago. It's from a, a language translation software that helps you learn other languages. And I could not help but see this. And just another reminder of how even the most important messages can get lost and misheard in translation. And so this is a, uh, an officer in the German Coast Guard on his very first day, and watch how he just totally messes up a really important message. Take a look. Yeah, what are you thinking about, right? That's a great commercial if you're a language translation software, right? The most important messages can get lost in translation. He totally, totally botched it, right? And I don't know, but I think about that when it comes to our understanding of Jesus's mission, when we turn in instead of out. Jesus says, don't lose this message. Don't miss it. I'm for the outsiders. I'm for the down and out. I'm for those people that think I'm the last person that would ever step inside a church building. I'm for you, Jesus says. I'm for you that are at the end of your rope. I'm also for you that think you're good enough this morning. That have built up all these walls. Think, I'm good. When deep inside you're hurting, or you're broken, or you're lonely, or you're desperate for community. Jesus says, I'm for you. Let's stop building up fences in case that was never the goal of God's people. The reason that Jesus says, I've called you to be witnesses is that was the original intention for the Jews. Ironically, the people that Jesus had the biggest issue with were his own people, the religious people, the Jews at the time, right? God's original intention is that they would be a light to the nations. Let's read this together from Isaiah chapter 42. This is God speaking to his people long ago in the Old Testament I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you as a light to the nations. That was a couple thousand years before Jesus gets up in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and says, You are the light of the world. You see, God's original intention for the church, for the, for the nation of Israel, is now being fulfilled By the church. Jesus says, the Jews couldn't get it done, so I'm blowing the doors off the whole thing and saying, anybody can be a part of this. And you, my chosen people now, the church, are called to live your lives in such a way as what Israel was supposed to do that all the other nations around them would look at that and say, I want their God. I want that kind of a relationship. That they would, just by being themselves and being so loving and so generous and uh, compassionate and gracious that other countries and other cultures around them would look at that and say, I want to know your God. Just just by being themselves, they would almost be like a a city on a hill or a light of the world. And here's the thing. Jesus says, don't forget, you can't be a witness and stay where you are. You can't be the light and only stay in the light. You have to go and pierce the darkness. How many friends do you have that aren't churchy people? How many friends that you have that are genuinely outside of the church that don't know Jesus? It's really hard to be the light when you only hang out with the light. It's really hard to make disciples when you only hang out with disciples. We are called to be on mission. God's heart for us as his people has always been to be that light that shines in the darkness or to be, a, to be like wells of life-giving water in a dry and thirsty land out in the desert that we would build wells, that we would be places where people could, that are thirsty, could come and get a life-giving drink of water to know Jesus Christ. I like to think about this. There's a fun little story that I kind of want to draw out for you on the whiteboard here this morning, but a while back there was a, a, a tourist, a visitor, that went to Australia, and he went into the outback, and he went to a cattle ranch, and he was intrigued because he saw just, you know, similar to you would go to uh, one of the plain states here and see these huge open cattle ranches, and every one of these marks would, would, would mark cattle. There was just the cattle and livestock all over the place there in the Australian outback, all over the place. But what he noticed and what he couldn't understand is that different than the U.S., there was no fences around. And yet all the cattle seemed to stay organized, and he was concerned and intrigued by this, and so he asked a local rancher, how in the world do you keep track of all your cattle? How in the world do you keep your cattle in and from wandering away and, and, and keep other cattle out? Well, there's no fences to keep people in and out. And the rancher replied, oh, <laughs> that's no problem. Out here in the outback, we dig wells instead of building fences. You see, the rancher said, there's no need to fence cattle in when they are highly motivated to stay within range of water, their most important source of life. And what we've discovered is that you just plant wells in these thousands of miles and acres upon acres. If we just plant these wells, you don't need to fence people in. People are going to naturally gravitate. Cattle are naturally going to go where there are sources of life. We build fences, we build wells instead of fences. You see, in Acts 13, while the religious people were busy building fences and saying who can be in and who can be out of this whole Jesus movement, Paul and Barnabas were digging wells all over the Roman Empire, digging life-giving wells and planting churches And mission outposts of the gospel where people could come and experience the life-giving water of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder then that in John chapter 4, Jesus goes into Samaria and meets with the woman at the well. Jesus spends most of his ministry tearing down fences and meeting people. And here Jesus meets this woman at the well in Samaria, which he goes out of his way to go into Samaria. If you know anything about your Bible history, you know Jews and Samaritans don't mix. Jews and Samaritans are at odds. As, as far as Jews were concerned, Samaritans were, were. I, they were heathens. They were so far from God. The best modern example I can give you of this is that to Jesus as a Jew to go into Samaria would be like a, like a Hawkeye fan to spend a weekend in Ames or something like this. Just despicable, right? I mean, that's why we're planning a campus in Ames, because God knows they need Jesus up there, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? Just had to slip that one in there, right? But the reason we're doing it is because there are tens and thousands of people in Ames that need the love of Jesus Christ and so we want to plant life-giving wells up there. And so Jesus goes out of his way and meets not only with a woman who was lower on the ring of society back then and Jews aren't supposed to talk to women, no man is supposed to talk to a woman alone, let alone a Samaritan woman who is our enemy. Jesus goes out of his way to meet with her and he says this to her while they're sitting at the well. She's had five different husbands, her life is a mess and Jesus doesn't condemn her He doesn't heap judgment upon her. He says, whoever drinks the water, he says, you you keep coming back to this well again and again. You're going to be thirsty again and again. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will be, be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, my mission has been and will always be building more wells instead of fences to keep people out. My mission is to bring living water to those who are desperate for it, even if that means moving people's cheese, even if that means making you slightly uncomfortable. You do know that Jesus's primary goal for your life is not to make you comfortable, right? It's to rock the boat. It's to move people's cheese for the sake of mission. And how easily do we forget that ourselves? That it is so much easier to build fences and say, "I want the church to be the way I want it to be, and I want to keep these people in and those people out." And from the very beginning, I mean this is our story as a church as well, not just hope, but our story is Hope Des Moines. Even before the church began, the tendency has been to turn in. The temptation is to turn in instead of looking out. Even before the church began, I remember when we were doing interest meetings way back when I first started, I was just a young buck at a seminary and I didn't really know what I was doing and I had people come up to me after these interest meetings for what we used to call city branch and everybody was guessing, like, what kind of a church are you going to be? Because, you know, hope in the city, I mean, this could be really cool. I mean, oh, there's all sorts of cool people. All the hip people live downtown. I bet I bet you're going to be the hipster church, right? And you have to be really, really cool to fit in at Hope City Branch because that's where all the hip and cool people are going to be. I'm like, well, we can't do that because I am just not that cool, and I'm never going to be cool. And so we can't be that. And so people are like, well, you know, that would be one way. And you could say, we're going to be the hipster church, and we're just going to build some fences and just label that's who we're going to be. That's what our well is going to be known for. Oh, I'm like, no, nah, that can't be it. It's like, oh, other people, like, no, you'll be the young professional church because all the people that, you know, live and work downtown, you'll kind of be the, the place and all the cool young professionals. I'm like, eh, I don't really know. That's not who's showing up either. Like, oh, I know, you'll be the family church. That, that's kind of what Hope's known for and all these big family events and everything like that. And there's a lot of young families that live in the Drake area. So you'll be the young family church. That'll, that'll be what distinguishes you. And then so you can build some fences. And then if people don't fit in, well, that's too bad. No, no, we're not really, that's not the full experience. Extension of it. Oh, I know. Hope in the city. If you're going to be an urban church, you're going to be the social justice church. That's what hope will be. You know, you'll, you'll reach out to the poor and, and the homeless because everybody's big on that. And, and, you know, we can go on mission and, and save people and we can solve the human trafficking and every possible human need in the world because hope's going urban. We're going to the city. You're going to be the social justice church. No, that's not really the, the heart of it. But God just started to bring all sorts of people. Because Des Moines is growing more and more diverse, married people came and kids came and students came and single people came and Republicans came and Democrats came and people from the suburbs came and people from the city came and families came and marrieds and singles and young adults and young professionals and everybody in between. And it just kind of hit me a few years ago, maybe we're just supposed to be a Jesus church and put him at the center And let that define who we are. That our job isn't to build up fences and say, well, we're going to be this kind of church or that kind of a church. Our job is to plant more wells because there's so many people in the Des Moines area that are thirsty for Jesus Christ and his life-giving water, and they just don't know it. And sometimes the church has made it even more difficult for people I love what the church decides a couple chapters later in Acts when they're trying to decide who, who should get in and who should get out and what do Jews have to do to become Jesus followers. And they say this, let us not make it difficult for people. And I want to apologize to some of you that have had such a hard time connecting with the church because sometimes we've made it really hard for you because the church is more often known for putting up fences rather than digging wells. And that's why one of the things that we've been so passionate about as a church at all of our campuses, we want to be known as a church more for what we're for rather than what we're against. We want to be known as a church for what we're for than the people that we're against or the people that we're going to point a finger of judgment and condemnation at. Lives don't change when you judge people. Lives don't change when you build fences to protect yourself and stay in your comfort zone. Lives are changed when you dig wells. And so even before the church started, we were tempted, what kind of a church are you going to be? Well, then a couple years later, that temptation came again. We had some people that were bringing cookies out to a lot of the people that live in in, uh, the tent camps and homeless camps here in Des Moines, which there are more than you think. And so they came to us and said, you know, we have hopes in the city now, and so we have this idea, what if we went and like picked people up at homeless shelters and, and pick people off the side of the road and under bridges where they slept, like what if we brought them here? To to worship, we could, like, feed them breakfast or something, and and then they could worship with us. And and I'll be honest with you, we had some discussion about this on our leadership team. There was some tension, because we're not a perfect church either. (laughs) And there was some disagreement, like, and there was some concern about, well, I don't know if they would really fit in here, and and what do we, because we don't know who's in the shelter and who's not, and they might look different, and they might look weird, and they might smell, and I don't know if I feel safe, and I don't know if we should really do this or not. But we took this holy risk, and we did it. Seven years later, at our last service, we served 139 people for breakfast upstairs this morning in a space that's meant for about 65. (laughs) Praise God for that. Absolutely. Because we dug a well instead of building a fence. And I have to tell you, this story It jogged my memory last night. Pastor Mike, and our senior pastor, and Sally were here at our Saturday service last night, and I looked out and I saw him and I remembered this. About a year after we started what's now called Breakfast Club, uh, I was preaching out at our West Des Moines campus, and I was telling everybody about what we're doing down here and reaching out. Uh, to those in need, and after I got done preaching, I was standing up in front, and people were coming down to talk, and I saw this guy walking down the aisle to me, and he looked so mad. He was this big, scruffy-looking, angry guy. I mean, he was like Santa Claus meets Harley. I mean, he just had decked out in black, and his jeans were torn, and, and he had this big, um, kind of big, long beard, and kind of looked like a hippie, and, and just, you know, cut off black shirt and tattoos everywhere, probably had chains and a baseball bat, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he looked mean. And he was coming right for me, like his eyes fixed on me, and he no, no personal space whatsoever. He walked right up to me, and he said, hey, are you the pastor here? And I'm like, oh my word, I never thought that it would end this way. I am going to die. I'm a year into this thing, it's my first real job, and I'm going to die right by the pulpit here, right? I'm glad that was a good, my good last sermon. He's like, are you the pastor here? And I'm like, uh... Uh, I, I'm, I'm one of them, he said. And he said, what's your name? And I'm like, I am not giving you my name because I don't want to die right here. So I'm like scrambling. I'm thinking, I'm like, uh, Mike Householder. I said, no, I didn't say that. I, I said, is John Ananson, He looked at me and he said, "Annison, I've heard about you. And I'm like, oh, crud. Uh, I've heard about you. And he said, I want you to remember this. Whatever you're doing down there, meaning here, don't ever stop. And then he looked at me, and I'll never forget this. This guy that I thought was going to rip my face off a couple minutes ago said this You tell those people down there, don't ever get comfortable. Because the second you get comfortable, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, the second we get comfortable, we lose our urgency for people to know the gospel. Oh, I'm good, <laughs> I've got a church. That was never the point if you read the book of Acts. He said, you don't get comfortable. You just keep doing what you're doing. And he walked away. I've never seen him again. But what I later found out through the grapevine at Hope was this guy's brother had been coming to breakfast club for a couple months who had been homeless and living in one of those tent camps. And because of breakfast club, got connected here. And I later found out that his brother had become a part of our church And he hadn't been a part of a church for 20 or 30 years. But he felt loved and accepted here because we refused to turn in and instead we turned out. And that's just one of many examples. I could go on and on and on about countless examples. The time when we move from one service to two services and people are saying, oh, I don't know, John, you know, we're not going to know everybody and the church will get too big and it'll become And Have we heard that before somewhere, Right. We forget our story, right? That's our part of our story. We've already learned that lesson. And again, when we move to two services to three services, oh, man, what's going to happen? A Saturday service? Like, we've never done that before. You want to kill a church? Have a bunch of people that say, we've never done that before. Quickest way to kill mission. And I remember the biggest temptation to build fences was when we built this, when we renovated this. Never mind that we had to build a fence on the Ingersoll. That was the city that made us do that. I'm not talking about that. But that's a whole other thing. The temptation was, and the biggest thing I was scared about was not are we going to be able to pay for this or the giving campaign or the construction. But God's got that. He'll take care of that. You know what I was most afraid of? That we would forget who we are as a church. Because for six years, all we had, we were renting an elementary school gym, and so all we had was. That. And so, pretty much everything we did as a church was out there instead of in here. And my biggest concern is that we were going to get comfortable and forget who we are, but that's not who you are, praise God. And I can say beyond a doubt that the last three years that we've almost three years we've been here, we've given more, more money away and has gone outside these walls to missions than we ever have. Four full time missionaries have been, been sent out of this place, not, not even trying, just because that's what the gospel does. It inspires people. And there are more people serving outside these walls as a church, than ever before. Praise God. We give God praise for that? Absolutely. Because that's what the mission does. When we don't get comfortable, the story of Hope Des Moines is being obedient and taking God-sized risks for the sake of the gospel, not our own comfort or preference. And so we've continued to grow. And because of that, the temptation remains. How do we stay with a sense of urgency with the gospel? Is is hope big enough already? (laughs) Big enough for who? Who? So I want to send you home with a couple ideas that you can grab a hold of today. How do we continue to dig more wells than build fences? How do we continue to live out our mission as a church and not get distracted as they did here in Acts 13? Well, there's two things I want you to know, and they both start with radical. Everybody say radical. Radical grace and radical invitation. That's how we do it. That's how you build more that's what I believe God is calling us to radical grace and radical invitation. First, radical grace. There's no doubt that God crosses our path with people that, that need to hear, like the guy that came up, the gentleman that's been coming to Breakfast Club. But sometimes God calls us to go to them, and sometimes He just brings people to our doorstep. And we've had thousands of people over the last nine years just walk in and maybe just like you this morning wonder, is this the place for me? <laughs> Am I going to be known here? Am I going to be accepted here? Maybe you've come in a time or two wondering that yourself. Do you you remember the first time that you came here? (laughs) And you kind of wondered, is anybody going to notice me? (laughs) I mean, it's hope. Am I just going to be a face in the crowd? Does anybody really care to get to know me? And, And if they got to know me and knew my story, would I still be accepted here? I think everybody, every single one of us has that. One of the things that I really enjoyed last summer when I was able to take a sabbatical for a few months is I went to as many churches as I could. And one of the things I loved about it is because I was new. <laughs> and every place I went, I just prayed this prayer, God, never let me forget what it's like to be new. Cuz I wasn't Pastor John that has done this for 9 years. It was I'm just new guy walking in that nobody knows. And it's like some churches had a whole lot of fences. It's like I wasn't even there. Whereas other churches had a lot of wells, and it's almost like they were expecting me. (laughs) Like the expectation was that there would be growth and that there would be new people, because the gospel changes people. God, never let me forget what it's like to be new. And I'm guessing every single one of you have wondered that, whether it's walking in here or any other church, Am I going to be loved here? Am I going to be accepted? Can I truly come as I am? Or do I have to put on some mask and posture up and and be this happy-go-lucky church person? I'm just giving you full permission here this morning that any time you walk in those doors, it's okay to not be okay. Honestly, I'm not a lot of times. And so if you get anything from these sermons, you better believe it's the Holy Spirit because some mornings I got nothing. Because I'm just John and I got my stuff too. Am I loved here? Am I accepted here? See, when we're people of radical grace, we expect messy things because when you're on mission, things are going to get messy. There's this story of a big prominent church in a big city that was really known for it's just being very beautiful and glamorous and stained glass windows and everything was pristine and, and there was kind of an assumed dress code there because a lot of the important people in the city were there and, and prominent people and so the men wore suits and ties and the women wore dresses and there's nothing wrong with that, that's, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with tradition, but it's a very traditional church and there's a choir and the pastor wore a big robe and a stole and everything and, and if you didn't look like that, then you really stuck out like a sore thumb. Well, church was going along, worship was going along one morning, and all of a sudden, this guy starts walking in from the back. And he is clearly not one of them. He doesn't fit in their fence. And his jeans are torn and raggedy, and his hair is long. He's got a long, unshaved beard. It looks like he hadn't showered for months. And he comes walking in. He's got like a tie-dye shirt. He kind of looks like a hippie, and he comes walking in. Clearly, he's down and out. And he's struggling. His face is all weathered and worn. And he can, as he starts walking up the middle aisle of the church, up towards the, the front, and you, just with every pew, every row that he passes, he can just feel the, the condemnation and the judgment just breathing down his neck. And pretty soon he's commanded everybody's attention, like, this never happens. We had a, a new person at church, and, and all these people are looking at him, and the pastor has to stop preaching because nobody's paying attention to him anymore. And everybody's focused on this guy, which his name is... Bill, which we discover, he's pretty much the equivalent with the town drunk, and he comes walking in. Except nobody has ever taken the time to really get to know him. They just know he's Bill. Oh, it's Bill! It's that one guy. Man, he smells. He doesn't look like us. He doesn't act like us. And he comes walking in. He gets to the front pew and reaches for his bag, and everybody's like, <gasps> "And he takes out his Bible." which looks just about as used and weathered and worn as he is, and he sits down right on the floor in front of the front pew and looks up at the pastor. Well, just as he was doing that, the council president, the president of the congregation, this prominent businessman in his 60s gets up and everybody, there's like this audible gasp going, oh man, what's he gonna do? He's gonna go rip this guy a new one. He's gonna kick him out so we can get back to church. Get this riffraff out of here. And he walks up and just stands right over Bill. And everybody's just waiting for him to just grab his arm and throw him out. Say, you don't belong here. And instead, the president of the congregation puts his hand on Bill's shoulder, kneels down, looks him in the eyes, and sits down next to him. Puts his arm around Bill with his suit and tie next to this guy, looks up and says, Reverend, you may continue. And for the rest of the sermon, they sat there arm in arm watching the sermon, listening. And the next week, Bill came back, and the next week, Bill came back. Sometimes it's hard to describe grace, and they can't quite put our finger on it. Like, I don't know, when you think about what kind of church we've been called to be here at Hope Des Moines, more of that, more wells, less fences, more about who we're for rather than who we're against. More grace. It's grace that changes people's lives, not arguments, not debates. It's radical love, it's radical grace. And when you've experienced radical grace yourself, if we're going to be a radical church, it's not just us reaching out to those people or the bills of the world. We are Bill. Every single one of us is that guy. We're all level at the foot of the cross. It's not us reaching the poor people. It's us being the church. No matter who you are, where you come from today, we're all Bill. And when we've experienced and allowed ourselves to be forgiven, experience that grace, then we become radical inviters, invitation. We don't wait for people to come to us. We go to them. And I don't know what that looks like for you this morning. But don't forget that we have the greatest news in the world. We have life-giving water to people that are parched and dry and empty and thirsty. It's not about us and it's not about us having all the right answers. It's about us pointing people to the well, to Jesus, where they can get that life-giving water. And so I don't know, maybe it just means not inviting somebody to worship, but just inviting somebody into your life. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know their names? Do you know your coworkers? It's inviting them into friendship. Invite them over for dinner. Invite them to get to know you. Have a barbecue this summer. Get to know people. Eventually it might turn into something, but do you love them? Maybe it's inviting that, that coworker that that person in your business to come to the leadership summit. Say, hey, we're doing this thing. It's about faith and work together. I would love. Come with me. I'll meet you there. Chances are, for those of you that are families or you have young kids, you probably know some other families that have young kids. The people you work with or go to, they go to the same school or play soccer or t-ball with, whatever it is. Invite them to VBS. Say, your kids are going to have a blast. We're going to sing some songs and have a big old party and have food and treats and snacks and games and crafts and all sorts. Come on. Maybe it's inviting them. Maybe it's inviting somebody to VBS. Radical invitation. Maybe it's kind of an indirect invite by sponsoring a child. I'd love to see every one of those envelopes gone today so more kids can come. So we can go up there to these neighborhoods around here and say anybody can come. You don't have to pay for it. It's free because God's grace is free. Would you invite somebody in that way today? If you're going to invest your time and your money and your energy and your resources to something, why not the church? (laughs) Because it's the one thing that God's guaranteed will not fail. It's never failed. It's never going to fail. If God is for us, Who can be against us? And so my challenge to you as we close this morning is to read this story in Acts 13 and I challenge you to never lose our mission. To keep the main thing the main thing which is connecting as many people as possible with the life-giving love of Jesus Christ. To build more wells, less fences. And it starts with us. If we're going to go out and go to people and not wait for them to come to us, it starts with us. I have a feeling that there's some people around you this morning that, you don't know, that are very different from you, that maybe annoy you a little bit. I'm not mentioning any names, right? Do you know them? If we're gonna go out there and do it, we should start tearing down some fences like Jesus did here. So after I pray in a second here, I'm gonna challenge you, instead of just heading right out of here, folks, we're family, we should get to know that your family members, your brothers and sisters around you, and I want you to find somebody purposely very different from you. This will be a lot of fun to see who you come up with, right? younger and older, people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, people with less hair like me or more hair like some of you. Find somebody that's purposely different from you. Look them in the eyes. Shake their hand and get to know them. Get to know their name and ask them, how did you find out about hope? What, What brought you here this morning? And let's spend some time tearing down some fences so that we can go out and build more wells for the sake of the kingdom. Amen? Let's stand and pray together.